Hello all. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are around the globe. I'm Sparrow and I am delighted to welcome you to the sneak preview for the spring 2022 courses at Signum University. And we've got a chat box. Please don't hesitate to send in your questions. And I would love first to introduce the courses and then our marvelous professors for the term. Gabriel, would you please start the slides? Thank you so much for that. We're presenting this term, the return of King Arthur. It is not the old texts about King Arthur. It's about that part of the legend that says Arthur is not dead and will return at our greatest need. We're very excited about this brand new live course, which means the lectures are being delivered live as the 12 weeks progress and recorded. If you are asleep or working during that time, you'll be able to watch them just a couple of hours later. Old Saxon, Heliand and Genesis. I hope that I am pronouncing Heliand correctly. The Old Saxon language. What is it? That's not the same as the Angles and the Saxons. Well, Professor Paul Peterson is here to tell us a little bit about that today. It is a language course taught as a, a seminar, a workshop seminar meeting two times a week for all students in an intensive work environment with your professor. Fabulous stuff. Science fiction part one is a flex course. That means that the lectures previously recorded are available for you to watch any time that is convenient for you and that you have a live precepting professor who will be having a discussion group with you every single week and talking for an hour, challenging you, uh, taking questions and getting the group to do that collaborative learning, which is so much the magic of Signum University classes. Finally, Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. It focuses on the legendarium of Middle-earth. It's another flex course, so you can watch the lectures, the amazing lectures by Verlin Flieger at your leisure, and then have your discussion group, your discussion board, and of course, assignments for those of you who are getting credit. Gabriel, would you kindly advance the slides? Dr. Gabriel Schenk is our lecturing professor for The Return of King Arthur, and we'll be asking him questions. And Dr. Serena Higgins is a precepting professor for the course. We're going to find out what the difference is. And Gabriel Schenk will also be precepting the class. Next slide, please. Dr. Paul Peterson is here today to talk about Old Saxon and the texts Heliand and Genesis. And also Dr. Nelson Goering is going to be on that team. Um, Dr. Goering, I believe has two discussion groups, each of which will meet twice a week. And, and Dr. Peterson, and the two of them are in very different time zones. So they very nicely cover the spectrum of when people need to meet. And it's exciting in the sense that there's not a huge amount of old Saxon material ready for people to study. And so there could be a very deep focus and a little bit of mystery solving. May I please have the next slide? Dr. Amy Sturgis delivered these lectures about the very beginnings of science fiction a handful of years ago. Again, those lectures are recorded. You can watch them at your convenience. And Dr. Faith Acker is bringing them alive in your discussion sections, urging you to do research, to read the primary material, to read the secondary material. And the course covers from Frankenstein, from Mary Shelley in the beginning of the 1800s, 
right into the middle, the heart of the golden age of science fiction in the 1900s. Next slide, please, Gabriel. Dr. Sarah Brown is a precepting professor for Tolkien's World of Middle Earth. She will be challenging people in the discussion groups to answer questions, to take their own study of the text deeper. The lectures are previously recorded by Dr. Verlin Flieger, who is such an extraordinary scholar. She is, well, I'm a big fan. I'm Sparrow Alden, and I also get to be a precepting professor for that course. May I please have the next slide? Here's the schedule as it stands so far. The science fiction group is not quite set in stone, but please go ahead and take a screenshot. And if you would like a copy of that, write to your advisor at Signum. If you don't have an advisor yet, go ahead and write to me, sparrow.alden at signumu.org. That's the schedule as we know it. And last slide, please. Thank you. That's where to go to get all the information you need for this term. Um, would, oh, would one of our no, I'm going to put that link in the chat after we're done sharing the screens. I'm getting used to when the whole screen is taken up and what I can do. This is very exciting. So I am ready to. <laughs> Thank you, Faith. Um, and I notice I didn't even put in like a little bird, but it's sparrow like a little bird. There we go. Alrighty, I am ready to ask some of you folks the questions that I hope will convey the excitement of a new term, the, the absolute awestruck awesomeness of these courses that we're offering. I'm going to begin with Gabriel Schenk. We hear that the King Arthur course is based on some of your own research. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, about your connection with this material? Well, I mean, I grew up with the story of Arthur, as many people did, especially in the kingdom where I live, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, and I also love fantasy and talking and all that stuff. And when I uh, was approaching my PhD, I thought, well, what's a way of studying fantasy in a way that is sort of academic and uh, will that they'll allow me to spend four years doing this? Of course, I didn't know about Sigmund University back then, uh, where you can just you know learn what you love. Um, but I thought, well, King Arthur, that's a good way in to um, writing about fantasy, magic, dragons, all the good stuff. And so I did my PhD on King Arthur and I, I did 19th and 20th century King Arthur um, literature. Uh, so stories about King Arthur, retellings of King Arthur, and these retellings are extremely varied as well. Uh, and uh, so that's what I wrote my thesis on. Um, so I will be dipping into my own research. Um, I did do my thesis about 100 years ago. Uh, I finished it in 2014. So I have changed my mind about a few things. I have progressed since that time. Uh, I am also doing lots of texts that weren't in my thesis. So it's, it's exciting for me as well to go beyond what I did uh, during my PhD. And I'm really, really looking forward to um, hearing students' views on these texts as well. So one of the texts we're doing, The Life of Sir Aglaville de Galles, I absolutely adore it, by Clemens Hausman, sister of A.E. Hausman. Um, me and Doug Anderson, who Tolkien scholars will know, and in fact, he's taught at Signum before on the Tolkien courses. Um, we're the only two people who've ever read this novel, pretty much. It's very difficult to get hold of uh, in a good edition. Um, you can easily get it on Kindle or you can get like secondhand copies and stuff. But um, I'm really looking forward to massively expanding the readership for that novel, for example, and getting people's views on that. And I'm sure I'll be spotting things that I've never thought of before based on students um, responding in lectures and in the preceptor session. So I can't wait. 
Fantastic. I'm going to ask your partner in the course, Dr. Serena Higgins. Serena, some of the folks watching today and watching the video are brand new to Signum, and they haven't sorted out yet the difference between a lecturing professor and a precepting professor. Could you explain those briefly for us? Sure, I'm happy to do that. And I'll start by saying these are roles. So sometimes the same person may play both roles. So for instance, Gabriel is lecturing this new course and also precepting. So think of them as roles, not necessarily people. We might move in and out of those roles. Several, several faculty members here have done that. So here is the difference. The course model that we use here is scalable so that we can run a class, whether we have 10 students or 10,000 students. And we look forward to the day when we have 10,000. So the lectures are presented live in an initial run of a course and then recorded in a flex class, generally speaking, twice a week. So for instance, in this upcoming return of King Arthur, Gabriel will be presenting these two live lectures each week. The students who are able to attend live at that time are welcome to participate by typing in their questions, but there's not there's not audio interaction back and forth, and it's really more of a lecture that's presented so that it can then be recorded and um, used for posterity. And if, if you want to add to that in a bit, Gabriel, you can. And then specifically, then we have these small sections that meet once a week with a precepting professor. These cap out at 12 students for a literature class, smaller for a language class. And these are the live interaction in which we can create community so that I as a precepting professor can create a classroom experience with the small group of students who are in my precepting section. So to really massively oversimplify it, the lecture is delivering the course content and then the precepting professor is working with the students on their writing, on their understanding of the work, on the ideas that they want to develop and on progressing through their degree. So if any of the other faculty want to add any nuances or additional details to that, it'd be great. Yeah, well, just quickly, I mean, that, I, I completely agree, but I'm, I'm hoping the lectures will be interactive through maybe even through voice as well. If people would like to engage um, through their microphones, they can do. They should be aware that their voices will be recorded uh, and they may be part of the, they become part of the course for a thousand years or more or however long the course lasts for um so you don't have to of course you can just type out and we can interact that way that's great but um I, it would be great to have lots of interaction in the lectures as well um but they're not going to be as interactive as the preceptor groups um they can't be the preceptor groups is where the kind of the real nitty-gritty takes place and of course we've got the discussion boards as well for back and forth throughout the week not just in those preceptor classes I think that will be new. I don't think lecturers have incorporated audio. Uh, they, ha they, I, they have. Have in they the past. on occasion? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah awesome. occasionally. Yeah. But, um, and it might not happen this time. Maybe everyone will be too shy, but um, hmm. it, it's definitely an option. Um, but I'm ho hoping to get lots of back and forth through text as well. Nice. And as far as assigning work as well, usually the lecturer sets the reading assignments so that they can lecture along with that schedule. And then in general, the precepting professor assigns the projects, the writing, quizzes, presentations, exams, things of that nature, and then gives the feedback on that work in general. Fantastic. Thank you very much for clarifying that. Okay, I need to dig in out of personal curiosity. Paul Peterson, who were the Saxons? Who are the Saxons? Where did they live? And what is the story of their written corpus that you're going to be exploring? So the, the Saxons are a, a tribal unit from Northwest Germany. And of course, some of those Saxons once upon a time migrated to Britain and settled in areas where they mingled with other Germanic tribes like the Angles and, and the Utes. Um, one of the, the key features about them is that they're, they're kind of a large tribal grouping that were smushed together because of the forces of European history, like Charlemagne. Um, Charlemagne was 
the leader of the Franks. He conquered much of Western Europe during the, eighth, the late 8th century into the early 9th century. And the Saxons kind of banded together against him as a resistance force. Um, did not work out so well for them. They were forcibly converted. Um, uh, uh, thousands of, of Saxon nobles were beheaded, um, publicly executed to sort of send the message that this resistance is over. They never did subjugate them completely or completely quell the resistance, but the Saxons did survive. They, they maintained some of their identity, but they were converted to Christianity. And when they were converted to Christianity, they were interested in naturally Christian texts. What's interesting though, is that they have two forces, two different Germanic tribal groupings at the times that were much larger, almost imperial um, tribal groups that had risen to, to larger nations uh, like the Franks, but also the Anglo-Saxons. So the Saxons were converted by kind of two outside forces. And these, these tribes, you know, that are grouped together as the Saxons, they, they learned a lot about their cousins across the, the sea, um, the Anglo-Saxons, and they, and they did know a bit about the same poetry. So poetry that we still recognize from Anglo-Saxon England, like Beowulf or The Dream of the Rood or a good number of other Anglo-Saxon texts. Uh, that same uh, tradition, that poetic verse form did exist among the Saxons, but they found a way to kind of uh, assimilated into their now Christianized culture like the Anglo-Saxons did. So they developed this text. It's a very literate text. They retold the Bible. Um, it was a synoptic gospel harmony uh, where they had kind of derived it from, you know, learned tradition. So the diatessaron, um, for example, and they, they harmonized the gospel. But the difference of this versus other harmonized gospels, you know, kind of smushing all four into one singular text, is that they told it through the lens of Saxon society so that Jesus becomes a warlord or a chieftain. Um, his disciples are thanes. So this has the same feel and themes of, of course, the original uh, gospels, but then through that lens of Saxon society. So it's a syncretic text that's very unique. It's literate, and yet it still has the, the flavor and the, the, the original style that you might have found in older heroic poetry. Um, so it develops in the ninth century. Uh, it has its own kind of small written tradition, Old Saxon as a language. It's very closely related to Anglo-Saxon or Old English. Um, it, it's mutually intelligible, in fact. It's a West Germanic dialect, and all West Germanic dialects during that time period would have been mutually intelligible to some extent. So we do know that the Anglo-Saxons actually had some heavy influence, in fact, on their literary production. There's also another text that the Saxons are famous for, which is a, is a part of an Anglo-Saxon text called Genesis. It's a retelling of Genesis in Anglo-Saxon poetic form. So in that same uh, alliterative verse format, like Beowulf and others. One small section of it, though, German scholars in the 19th century noticed this looks a little bit different than the rest of the text. It's a very random number. It's like line 340 or so. Um, and it runs about 300 or so lines out of this uh, thousand plus uh, verse uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon poem. And they just look funny. Um, the texts look different. And, and a German scholar, Edward Zievers, uh, he looked at it and said, this is not Old English, this is Old Saxon. And people laughed at him, of course. They thought he was kind of a weird guy. He, he held like seances with his Germanic ancestors and he thought he could hear their, their original proto-Germanic, um, Germanic alliterative verse forms or something. And he had kind of a weird idea about it. However, right after, not long after his death, they did find a manuscript, a fragment in the Vatican Library, which contained exactly part of this text. So he was on to something. He was correct. So part of this, this text, Genesis, which was only known to be Old English, was originally Old Saxon. So that text is known, you know, there's a small section of it. You know, it's about a, maybe a quarter of the surviving Anglo-Saxon poem is an Old Saxon original. So there are two texts from this time period, and that's almost it. Um, Old Saxon is the ancestral language of what became Low German. So the, the biggest difference between Old Saxon as a language and Old English, or we could, could have called it once upon a time Old, or something like Anglo-Saxon, 
is that it, this looks a little bit more German. Otherwise, it's just a dialect of the same language. So that's where it is. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. I've been, I've been very curious to hear this story. So did I understand you correctly that the texts that you folks will be studying are uh, found or were found in or are from or were written down in Northwest Germany? not on the island of Great Britain, but on the European mainland. Did I get that right? Correct. So they were composed and written in monasteries where they actually were in high German-speaking areas, but that's besides the point. There were some Saxons in these monasteries too, and they wrote side by side with old high German authors, oh. scribes. So they were in a kind of trilingual environment at, at minimum, you know, two dialects of what we could call German Latin obviously being a spoken language, especially during that time period, and most literature was written in that. Sure. So a lot of this is very um, uh, confusing, actually. And the text itself, we know when it was written, you know, early, we know it was in probably 825, no later than 850. And we have a few manuscripts that survive and some, some fragments. One of the most famous manuscripts, though, is located in the British Library, because of course it is. And on the front page of it, it's called, it's, it says in Latin that it's a Danish text, which is wrong. But <laughs> same difference. They're Germanic people from the continent. It's, you know, not all that different to them. They must have known, though, in earlier times that this was a, you know, their cousins across the sea. This, this was their poetry. This is their poetry. Well, thank you very much. Um, it sounds complex, but also like a lot of fun. Okay, question now for Faith Acker. This is science fiction part one. And we know from the description that someone can take part one and never take part two. You can take part two without having had part one. They're not dependent on each other. It's just that part one is the first part of the history of science fiction. What uh, what do those early years of science fiction have to do with readers today in the 21st century? Well, that's a great question, Sparrow. Um, one thing I want to point out is that although you're setting it up as an older and a newer, some of these texts are actually pretty new. So oh. we get to Dune at the end of this course and we get to Robert Heinlein at the end of this course. So we're really getting up into the 1960s, even though we start back in the early 1800s. So I think that has a lot of relevance for a huge number of our Signum students who are, are loving some of that science fiction from the 60s and even before. Um, many of us grew up on Dune and I did not grow up on Robert Heinlein. My mom would not have allowed that, but but many of us grew up with, with those texts and I think those are familiar standards of science fiction. But also one of the things that I think is really terrific about science fiction one, this particular course is how much work Professor Sturgis does, especially in the early weeks to set science fiction as a genre apart from fantasy, which is so deeply ingrained in our studies here at Signum. And she works to articulate that distinction really beautifully in a way that would allow a student to examine some of those texts that blur the lines between fantasy and science fiction and think about which elements of the text are fantasy, which elements of the text are science fiction, the questions that each genre asks. Um, and also she really sets up science fiction. She argues in her very first lecture that science fiction is a continuous conversation and that each modern author is referring back to that science fiction. And she even argues that proto-science fiction can't be the one of the reasons it isn't real science fiction, probably real science fiction is the wrong word there, but one of the reasons that it's proto-science fiction and not just straight up science fiction is because it's lacking that sense of conversation. It doesn't have the dialogue with other surrounding texts. And I think that dialogue, especially I think that dialogue is important because I'm a scholar of the Renaissance and classics. So this is like the Renaissance and classics of science fiction. It's the grounding that you can use to interpret recent science fiction and to look back at those older texts and those older works and then to take what you've learned from them back into your studies of your favorite current hot science fiction novel uh, which I'm suddenly blanking on at the moment but 
it's a terrific course and I'm so excited to be listening to all the lectures um, and reading these terrific books again. So fantastic. Yeah. That actually sounds like a very fun reading list. Oh yes. It's a it's a wonderful reading list. I'm super excited to be teaching this course. Hooray. Um Sarah Brown, I have a question for you. I'm thinking again of our students who are perhaps just starting their studies at Signum or have not yet decided to take the plunge. What if someone, what if they're just beginning to read Tolkien? Maybe they heard about Tolkien's novels from the movies first. Uh, They're just starting graduate school. Do you think these folks could manage the Tolkien's world class? How could they approach it? Oh, they can certainly manage this course. And it's one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite courses that Signum holds on Tolkien. It's because it is the perfect grounding in Tolkien for anybody who feels that they may not be 100% confident in approaching Tolkien in a scholarly way, whilst also offering um, that ability to dig into Tolkien for those who have done some scholarly work on Tolkien before. So it actually bridges the gap for everybody. But I'll tell you why. Because for everybody who comes to this course, what this course gives, and this is thanks to Berlin Flieger, who is one of my all-time favorite Tolkien scholars for so many reasons, it gives this great grounding So although we're going to talk a lot about what she refers to as the masterwork, which is the Lord of the Rings, before we get to the Lord of the Rings, we have a few weeks in which we look at some background things to Tolkien's writing. For example, we start off in week one by looking at Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics, which is one of Tolkien's most famous and most important essays, lectures that he wrote. Um, And that gives you a really good idea of where he was getting a lot of his thinking from when it comes to writing that great masterwork that is The Lord of the Rings. And not only that, but she introduces us to what is, I think, generally recognized as the most important of all the published letters of Tolkien, which is the one that he wrote to Milton Waldman. And the reason why that is such an important letter is because he wrote it specifically to almost sell the idea of the Lord of the Rings to Milton Waldman. And so in so doing, he explains so much behind the Lord of the Rings that when you read it, it tells you an enormous amount about his own planning and thinking behind that text. So that's just week one before we actually get to the text itself. You start to learn a lot about Tolkien's thinking. And then from there for the next couple of weeks, we look a little bit at Uh, Beowulf itself. Week three, we look at Tolkien's work on fairy stories. And um, for those who have done Tolkien courses with Signum before, they'll recognize, I don't think there's one Tolkien course where on fairy stories is not a required text because it's so important. Um, And then we start talking a bit about the Quenta Silmarillion, the Ainu Lindale, which is of course his kind of uh, origin chapter, if you like, um, of where his world comes from in the Silmarillion. Um, we then talk about the Hobbits, and then we spend five weeks on the Lord of the Rings, working our way through book one, book two, book three, etc., etc., in order, um, so that we can really see the progression of the story, the way in which everything comes together, how his planning comes together. So if you have at the very least watched the films, although, you know, obviously I'm expecting people to have read the book for this because you need the book, um, you will have that sense of joy as we get to each moment in the, the, uh, the course, each book in the course that you know what we're actually going to be talking about. You know this part of the story, and not only are we going to talk about the story, we're going to talk about all the building blocks behind the story. I love this course because it is the best introductory course to Tolkien, but it also allows those who already know quite a bit about Tolkien to just dig in that little bit deeper for themselves. 
So that's why, to hopefully answer your question, um, that's why even for those who might feel just that little bit lacking in confidence that this is a good course, yes, there are assignments. Hello, it's a master's degree, there are assignments. But the assignments are designed to enable people to explore Tolkien's work from many different angles. And we will talk about those assignments in class. I'm there to help people who feel less confident about their writing. And not only that, but of course there is, Sparrow is there not, the writer's forge to help people who want to work on their writing behind the scenes. And I'll be guiding people towards that. And actually, you know, I think that this is a course that anyone can love and enjoy. I'm, I'm excited to teach it. It's been a few years since I've taught this course um, and I'm really excited to teach it again because anything to do with Berlin Flieger and I am there. Fantastic, thank you very much. And as you were speaking, I thought to myself, and so I'm weeping because, you know, the sun, the, the earth is turning, I'm weeping. I thought, what if this is someone's first time through these books? Won't that be a privilege, <laughs> right? Won't it be a privilege to be in the classroom with them? Wow. Okay. Yeah. And, okay, stop crying. There we go. Ha. Fan, Sparrow. Fan. <laughs> fan. Oh, You're right. You're right. We fan. Dry up the tears. Here we go. So, Gabriel, will you please distract us while I'm weeping? We have heard that you're using a variety of Arthurian texts and media, that it's not just novels in front of the students. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I can. Although just quickly, I want to do a bit of synchronicity and across the courses here, because firstly, I love the fact that we're offering Saxon at the same time as King Arthur, only at Signum University, because the Saxons are the bad guys in the, in the King Arthur stories quite often. Um, so if you're if you're learning Saxon whilst reading King Arthur, it's brilliant. It's, you're getting both sides of the debate, as it were. And also, um, Milton Waldman is the goody in the talking course, and he's the baddie in the King Arthur course, because he refuses to publish The Once and Future King when um, T.H. White tries to get it published with Collins in 1941. And Waldman sees the genius in Tolkien, tries to get it published with Collins. I think it didn't work out with Collins in the end, but then Collins had the, uh, the opportunity to publish The Once and Future King in the end, having seen how successful um, The Lord of the Rings was. So there's a kind of interesting synchronicity there. Um, again, if any students are doing both courses, it's the kind of uh, Milton Waldman is the, uh, the guiding thread. Um, to answer your actual question, um, which was about different types of text yes, in this please. class, yeah. So we are doing a quite a big variety of texts. Um, we're doing comic books, plays, short stories, novels, films. We're in the lectures. Um, I actually begin the very first lecture with a piece of music that we then analyze. Um, in week two, we look at a prop. Um, from a, a play production from 1895. Um, I have things like, like this, um, which is a, a souvenir from that play. I um, also have, um, for example, these tiles. These were um, made by Mintons in the 1890s. They're showing um, depictions of Idols of the King by Alfred Lord Tennyson, which is one of the texts we're reading, but we can read this tile as a text as well. And we can look at it and we can sort of work out what, what can we tell about King Arthur, the reception of King Arthur in the 19th century. This is one of the very first examples of mass-produced Arthuriana. Um, so these were block printed and you could afford to buy one even if you weren't particularly well off. So suddenly King Arthur is becoming more accessible to general people, which is a trend that continues into the 20th century. So there's loads of things we can do. It's not just literary texts, as exciting as those are. There's all kinds of different types of texts that we're studying in this course. Oh, that is very exciting. Um, I do want to call folks' attention to a question which has been asked and answered 
about our language courses. The Old Saxon Seminar may very well be offered again, but it will not be turned into flex because the language workshops are an intensive seminar style uh, work and collegial discussion experience. There isn't a lecture to record. So when it is run again, it will again be live with two 90 minute readings. And, and in fact, in fact, um, Paul Peterson, what does the homework and work pattern or schedule look like from week to week so that folks can see if they can picture themselves being part of that experience? So it's run as if it were sort of the second term of of a language sequence course. So at Signum, we have several other courses where you have sort of, let's say, introduction to Old Norse. Then you could take a continuation course in Attic Poetry. And Attic Poetry um, would be run exactly like this one in that it will just be hardcore translation to the point, um, intensive translation. And that is kind of the, the primary focus. Um, so it's advanced language specific training, uh, continuing from a, an introductory course. Now, what's interesting about this one is there is no intro to Old Saxon. So it requires some knowledge of either Old English or Germanic philology. Um, so we have a, a two-sequence um, Germanic philology course here, which is run as if those are more like the introduction to Old Norse or introduction to Old English course. Those are run more regularly. Um, and sort of spawned from Germanic philology too is is an, is a need for further language courses. So we we offered uh, introduction to Gothic. That one did have an introductory component because there's a lot less text. However, this doesn't quite fit the mold for having an introductory course because if one has taken, for example, introduction to Old English, this is just a, a sort of optional readings in. Old English and their neighbors right next door with an almost identical language, just dialectal differences. Um, so it, anyway, the, the, the course is intensive translation. We start with, I think, about maybe 100 lines of, of Germanic alliterative verse in the first week right away. No mercy. I'm sorry, Takako, that's for you. Um, and then we jump into 200 to 300 lines on average every week. Um, in our introduction to Old English course, it's there's a continuation of that, which goes into like introduction to Old uh, Norse, goes into Etic poetry. Introduction to Old English goes into Beowulf, which is translating the entirety of Beowulf. Now that's uh, a very long text, and we've somehow managed to squeeze it into 12 weeks. The Haliond is, is almost double the length of Beowulf, so there's no way it's possible to read that in 12 weeks. So we're reading excerpts. However, we're still reading the majority of it, um, you know, as such. So let's say, uh, you know, roughly about the same amount of lines as the Beowulf translation seminar, which is run in the same way. So this course kind of draws on popular demand from Germanic philology students, introduction to old English students, and then Beowulf translation seminar participants can kind of hop right in. It's also not offered very much anymore. Um, Gothic and Old Saxon are two that are often kind of excluded from, from uh, old Germanic language courses um, because they don't quite fit into any category. So Old, old Saxon, for example, might belong in, so let's say, a German department, but German departments aren't usually interested in Old Low German, which this could be called, um, and because High German is, you know, the bulk of that language. Um, and then uh, Scandinavian studies, for example, for Old Norse. Um, in some places, like the UK, often Old Norse will be clumped into an English department because it has some shared literary tradition, and there were a lot of Viking and Norse people who conquered parts of England, Danelaw, and brought their language and influenced our language. We're still speaking today in modern English has a huge Scandinavian uh, part uh, from Old Norse in it, in our kind of day-to-day, -day, everyday language. So our pronouns even are affected by that. They, them, their, and, and um, you know, a good number of everyday words, which were supplanted by Old Norse words. 
we don't have that situation with old Saxons. They didn't conquer anybody. They were the conquered, um, you know, so, so anyway, the, the seminar is really intensive translation. It's, okay. it's diving right into the text. We read original manuscripts, also paleography skills included. It's very easy to read by comparison to other, you know, languages and other manuscripts. It's actually readable from the manuscript. So no punctuation, but otherwise the words are separated and as we might okay. even expect them, so. Thank you very much. Um, Susan has her hand up. Susan, uh, Gabriel will unmute you. Would you like to ask your question directly? So I can I can enable Susan to unmute herself. Oh, that okay. makes sense. I can't actually unmute if, directly. So Susan, you're, you're free to unmute yourself if you would like to speak. Or maybe the hand up was or for maybe. something else. Oh. Oh, very good. Susan also oh, I also oh, see no, I am so sorry. I did that accidentally. Okay, no problem. <laughs> but I'm enjoying this immensely. I want to take every course, but I can't. So I'll okay. see you in sci-fi. Fantastic. And maybe the rest I, of Absolutely. I'm sorry, I, I cut sorry, Susan, I cut you off before you finished. Okay. We're still learning I, how to use this as well. I did find that we have some unanswered questions in the question box. Okay, uh, from Patrick Lyon, and this one is to Serena and Gabriel, is in parenthesis part of the Arthur class, a fascinating book. You helped me out a lot with that when I was looking into it a few semesters ago. I, I remember that discussion very well, Patrick. Great to see you again. Um, the in parenthesis is not part of the reading list. I did think about including it, um, but we are definitely covering the First World War. Um, we're reading E.A. Robinson and Wilfred Owen. I will be talking about in parenthesis in the lecture that week. Uh, the reason it's not the, in the reading list is I, I had to make some tough choices. I can't include everything. Faith is nodding because I remember um, <laughs> you had a similar situation with the English epic class for sure. Um, 12 weeks is a very long time, but also it's no time at all. Um, but the end result of every good Signum course is that you read a lot, but also you end up with a long pile of books to read afterwards as well. At the beach this summer, you can read in parenthesis. Um, I'll, I'll be talking about the King Arthur elements in parenthesis. There's a lot going on in that text. It's not just about King Arthur, um, but it does uh, put Arthur into a World War I context, which I can summarize in the tech, in the lecture, and then people can read uh, the text themselves if they want to. Oh, marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. Um, Serena, are you available for the next question? I am indeed. You have taught another King Arthur course here at Signum University, The Inklings and King Arthur. Can you tell us how those two courses relate? Sure, I would love to. The previous course, The Inklings and King Arthur, was based on a book that I edited of the same name that brought together a great variety of scholars to look at Arthurian works by C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and Owen Barfield, and also a few of their contemporaries and friends and so forth. Now, I precepted for that course, and Gabriel was actually one of the lecturers and co-lectured along with Maggie Park. It's a little ironic that I didn't lecture, you know, my own class, but I was a little busy writing my dissertation at the time. So Gabriel and Maggie did an amazing, amazing job, much better than I would have with your comprehensive um, Arthurian knowledge. So these two classes work beautifully together. They really overlap and are in conversation with each other, but a student need not take both, could take one and not the other, could take both in any sequence, you know, at any time. So they're really, really great conversation partners, but they're not meant to be a sequence. So the relationship between them is really that the heart of the two courses cover a very similar time period, which is roughly the first half of the 20th century. But both classes also have some texts outside of that time period. The Inklings and King Arthur one started with a unit on sources. So it had some of the older medieval texts. It had some of the Welsh and French versions and some of Mallory. 
But then the middle section of the class, the heart of it was Arthurian writings by Roger Lancelin Green, Charles Williams, Tolkien, Owen Barfield, and C.S. Lewis. Whereas this class is 19th century and 20th century Arthuriana, not including Inklings. There is at least one point of major overlap in the two courses, which is both of them look at T.H. White because he was moving in sort of both of those circles of writers. So that's uh, really the difference in the classes. They're very complementary, work really nicely together. Uh, Gabriel, anything you want to add or clarify on that? Yeah, not really. I mean, I, other than it, there's no prerequisites for this course. Uh, if you've never even heard of King Arthur, you are very, very, very welcome to attend and participate. And you will not be at a disadvantage, actually, because I, I explain who King Arthur is in the first lecture. And actually, there is no such thing as King Arthur. It's kind of the point. There's no single version of King Arthur. That's the whole point of the course. Um, if you have knowledge of Mallory, other medieval writers, if you've done the Inklings and King Arthur course, of course it will be relevant and useful for you, but it's not a requirement. There's some overlap, um, but I have purposefully made this course different from the Arthur story taught by Vernon Flieger and Inklings and King Arthur, uh, which we offered a few years ago. Fantastic. I do want to point out that the Inklings and King Arthur is going to be offered in the fall of 22. So if you want to immerse yourself, I suggest that people could enjoy the return of King Arthur this spring, get themselves the anytime audit of Berlin Flieger's The Arthur Story to enjoy on summer vacation and dive into the Inklings and King Arthur in the fall. I just, just saying, well, you can do that. Okay, Faith. As you were preparing for the science fiction one course, did anything surprise you or stand out to you? You've already mentioned the great um, convergence of ideas or modes, I'm not quite sure what, I'm excited to, to, to take a course from you if I could, between your classical medieval Renaissance studies and this early science fiction course, did anything else surprise you as you were preparing? Well, Gabriel was just talking about how difficult it is to cut down a reading list. Uh, and if I may say so, King Arthur has an arguably smaller reading list to start from than the epic. <laughs> uh, but I think science fiction may even top the epic in terms of its immeasurable scope. And I think that Professor Sergius has just done the most fabulous job picking representative examples and then alluding to the other texts that could be read or could be studied or could be referenced. And so it's not really a surprise to me because she's a, a gifted instructor and lecturer, but it's just been fascinating as I've been working through some of the readings and lectures to think about how nicely the examples she picks out of the texts that she has chosen for the reading list work with the larger canon of science fiction as well. Uh, so it's a it's a terrific preparatory for course for students who already have an interest in science fiction, even if the book that you love is not in this course or even not in science fiction too, because there are probably thousands of science fiction books that did not make it into either course and texts in addition to books, uh, movies. Her, her principles will work with movies and TV shows and other science fiction texts as well, besides just novels and short stories, which is primarily this course because of its era. But I think she's just done a great job framing the questions of science fiction so that they work with the books we have the time to read in the short 12 weeks and also apply to whatever other science fiction texts each of these, each student or enrolled person chooses to enjoy. It sounds like as with many of our courses, what the student brings into the texts and the discussions and the work will very much influence what they learn, what they receive, um, and how they will approach the work. Does that, is, is that a correct interpretation? I think that's a very correct interpretation, but I would also say that if you aren't 
familiar with science fiction, this is also a good beginning course. She refers to a lot of other texts. She definitely, um, definitely is referring to other texts throughout, but because she tries to center on the examples that she's already set on the reading list, I don't think that somebody who's new to science fiction as a genre will find it particularly overwhelming to figure out what's going on in okay. this in the in the set reading so it's it's a good starting point as well as being useful for a student who already comes in with a wide canon of science fiction already on their shelves so to speak fantastic i would like to read out an answer that went through the question box because i think these answers only go to the original people who asked them the question was what are some things you each hope students will be able to articulate or understand by the end of the course. And Sarina said something wonderful. She is, of course, very interested that people have writing skills, organization skills, the ability to articulate and focus what they have to say in order to engage in academic discourse, but also to develop that confidence in creating original critical interpretations of whatever the texts are. This, these thoughts apply to all of the things that we are teaching this year. And most of all, to develop the student's own ideas and intersecting ideas about why the particular text that you are looking at at the moment developed in that way, in that time and place, and for the people and the authors uh, who were there on the ground as the piece of work was being born. So it um, could not have said it better myself on behalf of every one of the classes that we teach here at Sigmund. Um, Sarah, before I get to my final popcorn question, I just would like to know, why are we reading Beowulf? in a Tolkien course. <laughs> I could throw that back and just say, why not? Um, but actually, it's really important to read some of the older texts that Tolkien was really engaged with before we start looking at the works that he produced himself, because it tells you so much about his interests um, what he loved about literature, the kinds of, of literature that is studied in uh, Dr. Peterson's classes, of course, as language texts a lot, um, that Tolkien engaged with and loved for their language and their storytelling. And if you understand that he loved both the language and the storytelling of tales like Beowulf, it explains why you have in the Lord of the Rings a focus on both languages and story. And that if you don't see that focus on language in the Lord of the Rings, you actually miss an enormous part of what that text offers. So it's not compulsory that every reader of Tolkien should read Beowulf, no. But it's really helpful to do so if you want to really understand where Tolkien was coming from. So that in a nutshell is my answer. And besides which, it's a great story and you should read it because it's a great story. It's a and, and by the way, Grendel's mother was really put upon. <laughs> I think we should start the Grendel's mother fan club. Right? It's, yeah, it's time. I mean, it's time. come on, poor woman. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wonderful professors, it is time for that final question, which I promised I would ask you. Oh, let's just spell and there we go. I'm putting a, a little cue card in the chat. My question for you, popcorn answer. If you could take one of the other courses as a student, which one would it be? And I'm just going in order by where you are on my screen. Paul Peterson, what class would you sign up for if you had the time? All of them, of course. I think they're great. <laughs> I, I, my one role administratively at Signum is selecting the courses and when we offer them. I don't do it alone. 
Sara also helps me significantly with that. But I would love to take all of them, frankly. I think they're great. I mean, there's something to get out of each and every course that we have at Signum. And I like to that we maintain this balance between the relationship of literature and language. It's not an either or, it's, a, it's an and or both, um, sometimes in conjunction, sometimes separately. But I think that they're all really interesting. I'd love to learn a little bit more about Tolkien. So one of my weaknesses is knowledge of Tolkien's literature. I think that is probably the one that I would would most like to take. But I think that anything about King Arthur, period, anytime the name is mentioned, I'm I love that stuff. So it's it's actually one of the first things that inspired me to kind of dive into medieval literature was just, you know, all of the legends behind King Arthur. And that's technically in antiquity, but it doesn't matter. The literature derives from mostly medieval traditions into the, the modern era. And I think it's great. So science fiction also, super interesting. I mean, how you can't study this stuff anywhere else. I mean, this is a really unique and special place that we have these types of courses. And my, my own course aside, I, I wouldn't take it because I've already taken it. But if if I were interested in languages, I would sort of be looking at this. And if you hadn't taken one with us before, everybody out there in the audience, take another one of our courses in the introductory level. Take it through to Old English or Old Norse or Germanic philology. Um, Latin will be coming up in another year too. Another very important language for us and, and our um, many concentrations. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop bloviating on that, but I'll just say all of them. I want to take them all, except my own. That's the only one. <laughs> okay, okay. Popcorn answer would, I'm going to ask the others to stick a little closer to that quick response notion. <laughs> Serena Higgins, which one do you want to take? Science fiction. Yes. Faith Acker? I'm going to bloviate a little bit because I've had the just, I mean, obviously what Paul said, all of them, right? but I've had the joyous opportunity to have both Professor Shank and Professor Higgins lecture on my EPIC course. And I just retaught that last fall and re-listening to their lectures, I was blown away all over again. So I would 100% go for the dream team uh, that is Professor Shank and Professor Higgins. Um, so sorry, uh, Professor Peterson. <laughs> Alden and Brown, you are awesome too, but those lectures were just on fire. They are absolutely amazing. All right, Sarah Brown, which course have you taken? Oh, King Arthur. I remember as a child falling in love with the Once and Future King, and that kick-started my love of all things King Arthur, including, and let's not forget, the wonderful TV series of Merlin, which I still love and still think was taken off our screens far too quickly, but it would be King Arthur. Fantastic. And finally, Gabriel Schenk, if you could take one of the other classes being offered, what would it be? Saxon, and I'll tell you for why. Uh, the English writer Edward Bulwer-Lytton in the 19th century wrote this epic poem called King Arthur, and at the end, King Arthur marries Guinevere, who he makes a Saxon princess, very different from other versions of the legend where the Saxons are the bad people. But Bulwillerton says King Arthur marries a Saxon, and they have uh, descendants that go up to the present day to Queen Victoria. Uh, that, for me, is what the King Arthur story is really about, is about disparate people coming together, settling their differences, living in harmony. And I feel like I know the King Arthur side pretty well. Uh, I'd love to know the Saxon side as well. So I love this idea of kind of bringing everyone together, need to understand the language and the literature a bit better. So I'd say Saxon. Fantastic. Already. I'm so sorry, but I have to interrupt. Professor Alden, you are also a preceptor. So you also need to answer this question. <gasps> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, okay, yes, I am going to be precepting this term, one of the sections of Tolkien's World of Middle-Earth, which Verlin Flieger course, oh my goodness, but I will now publicly declare that in the back of my mind, along with the list of 4,000 other things that I want to do at Signum University, 
I want to go back and do a graduate diploma in language. Thank you, Germanic philology. I, I'm kind of a distant fangirl, so I would, if I were qualified, I would take Old Saxons, but I'm not yet, so I would take King Arthur, only because I already took science fiction. So, my friends, thank you so much, wonderful colleagues, for joining me for an hour, for sharing your hearts, for showing what I heard you all say was you're so excited that this is going to be an adventure and that all your students are in for a fabulous ride. I'm crying again. So that is my sign to say, thank you all in the audience for joining us. And those of you who are watching the video, we look forward to the start of term Monday, January 10th. If you need help, write to info at signumu.org right away. And the person who answers that is one of the kindest people in the universe, and we're ready to help you out. Have a great term. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.